and there's always opportunity though. I mean, that, that's what we say that I pick on these other guys, but, but there's always opportunity. You just got to know where to look. And uh, when you find a deal, you got to seize it quick. So. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Kenny Wolf from Wolf Investments. Kenny has bought thousands of multifamily units over the years. He is buying dollar generals under double and triple net leases. We're going to talk about that today. That's a, a very interesting strategy that he's doing very well with. So it'd be worth learning and it is worth learning about the double and triple net lease strategy with corporate guarantees. If you ever have been curious about who owns those dollar generals in your area, it's private investors like Kenny and uh, his investors in his fund. So keep listening. You're going to learn about uh, the business of buying dollar generals, what the market is like now in the DFW area. You're going to learn about multifamily developments. And uh, yeah, this is a, a fun discussion. And Kenny's a very knowledgeable guy. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you are enjoying the show. Thank you for tuning in. And here is the interview. Kenny, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Tyler. I appreciate you having me on. It's my pleasure. So before we get into talking about the topic today, could you tell our listeners a bit about your background and what you do in real estate? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I uh, run, managed, and started Wolf Investments over eight years ago. We started buying multifamily properties here in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, and then uh, branched out. So been in multifamily for over eight years and been in five different states. Done about 3,700 units so far. Uh, we'll probably pass the 4,000 mark by the end of the year on that. And then a little over uh, 18 months ago, we started buying dollar stores. So we put a fund together for our investors, bought some double net, triple net dollar store properties in Texas and Oklahoma underneath that fund. And uh, really like that model a lot. It's a great cash flow monster. And then the uh, third and final thing we're doing is some development as well. So we're about to wrap up a townhome development. Um, and kicking off a bigger develop, multifamily developing project uh, here in the next few weeks. That's awesome. You're doing really big things. Before you got into real estate, what did you do? Uh, so I was in oil and gas. I was a CFO at the age of 28 for an oil and gas company um, wow. in Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, they basically had three of us as a spinoff company. And they said, uh, here's uh, 20 million bucks. Go figure it out. So, so we did and leased a whole bunch of minerals and put them to Chesapeake and anyway, a lot. But uh, that's kind of where I kind of got my seed money to jump into um, real estate investing. Wow, that's awesome. Quite the background, quite the background. So <laughs> you, we've tackled multifamily on the show before. You've done a huge number of units, but uh, you know, today I really wanted to get into the double and triple net commercial investing that you're doing and, and buying dollar stores. So first, I don't think we've even addressed double and triple net in principle <laughs> on the show. So what are okay. double and triple net investments? So I don't want to compare them a little bit to multifamily because they're, they're good to, to compare to each other. So for those, because you're listening, I think you're the listeners are more used to multifamily or rental kind of residential commercial real estate, right? So if a tenant doesn't pay you rent, you have to go chase it, right? And then if the toilet breaks, you have to fix it. Uh, so those are the two kind of suggest, you know, and then opposite would be, you know, these double net or triple net leases that we get. Um, the tenant is responsible for the, uh, the majority of the upkeep at the property. So if the toilet breaks, they fix it. If the lighting goes, lights go out or electrical issues, they fix it. 
And then the people guaranteeing um, the properties that we're buying are publicly traded corporate stores. So we don't do franchisees and we definitely don't do Linnell uh, mom and pop owners on that side of it. So that's kind of the difference is that in double net, triple net, you don't have as much operational risk as you do uh, multifamily or single family for that matter. Hmm. So yeah, and you're only leasing to publicly traded companies. Like you said, do you get a corporate guarantee on your lease? Yes. And that's the big draw, right? Is that like right now we're looking at $4 generals right now for our fund and um, it's an eight cap, eight cap deal and triple net guaranteed by dollar general. Wow. I mean, it's just, uh, it's amazing. It's the, right now those kind of stores like that, and we're not stuck on just the dollar stores. We've been looking at AutoZone, O'Reilly's, other things like that. But, but right now the, the highest cap rate to interest rate ratio are those dollar stores. So we'll, our fund will probably buy a lot of those. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm surprised to hear that it's trading at an eight cap and not something even comparable to what multifamily is trading for right now, maybe, you know, five or six or even lower if you're in a major market. Right. And so the, uh, I mean, you know, if you buy a Starbucks, you know, that those go for like a five cap Burger King, maybe five and a half. So there's a difference in the space on kind of what cap rate you can get. So the properties that we're buying mostly, they were in Texas and Oklahoma in the last fund. So we bought seven of those from underneath one fund. And, uh, Texas and Oklahoma, they're smaller towns, so like 3,000 to 10,000 people. And the cool thing about that is, the good thing is that Walmart is like a 45-minute drive away uh, from these dollar stores, and Amazon can't ship overnight to those smaller towns. So we're kind of protected from, on the because it is a retail shop, right? So you have to think about it that way too. But we're somewhat protected from the big boys, Walmart and Amazon, kind of eating up. Like today, I would never buy a Best Buy in a major market right now. I think you're crazy. <laughs> that stuff, right? But to me, I think that's why people, why we're getting these, seeing these bigger cap rates. People are throwing out all retail out, you know, in the same bathtub, but they're missing out. You know, they're also throwing out the baby, right? That's the saying. So, yeah. so anyways, that's something I think is why we're, uh, what we're capitalizing on right now. So is this a pure cash flow play and you're just buying it at an eight cap and making money off of the spread between the cap rate and the debt? Are you adding value? Like, what's the detailed strategy? Yeah, I mean, so, so these you're buying mostly for cash flow. So for our investors, we pay out monthly on, on our commercial fund because they are so stable. The rent shows up on the first, mortgage out on the third. The automatic bank transfers to take the differential out is on the twelfth. And so, anyways, it's all pretty much automated once after you buy it, nice. um, which is beautiful. It's real mailbox money on that part of it. But uh, our investors seem between eight and ten percent cash on cash return. And then because they're 25-year AM loans, you're getting another about 8% just paying down the loan. So on the low side, we're at 16% annual returns. It's guaranteed by a publicly traded company, uh, long-term leases. And, you know, appreciation and the commercial can be maybe 2 or 3% or much higher depending on the deal. But there's a lot less that we can do to drive that valuation as opposed to like multifamily. So we're buying these mostly for cash flow. If we get extra on top of the 16%, that's gravy on the deal. Mm. So when you say long-term lease, how long-term are these leases? So three of the ones we bought last year, we bought on grand opening day, uh, family dollars. And so those they were brand new. Those were 10-year initial terms. And then there are six five-year um, extensions at 10% rent increases each five years. And then, wow. so we bought three brand new like that. The other four we bought, we kind of mixed in um, some ones that are already into their extensions. Those we got at a higher cap rate. One was at like a nine and a half cap. 
um, on really low rent. So I'm kind of hoping they don't renew, honestly, because I'd be able to triple the investor's money on that deal if they don't call one. It's it's the family dollar in Diana, Texas. So they've got another three years left on that extension. And uh, right now in that town, there's no Dollar General. So I'm hoping they don't renew and can get Dollar General in for much higher rent. And uh, once we would do that, we would sell the deal. Because uh, you maximize your price when you have, it depends on who's guaranteeing the loan or the lease and who's guarantee or, and then how long for, how long is that, that and it, the remaining term of that lease? So, so meaning if the remaining term is relatively short, then is that considered less desirable than if the right. remaining term is long? Right. Yeah. So yeah, there's folks that, because there's risk if they don't renew, right? That's your risk. So. And that's another thing why I think buying them as a fund is, is very important because, you know, we have seven of these stores under what's one fund. So if one goes dark, so even if they shut down the store, they still owe you that rent for the remaining years left, right? Even if they close it down. So, um, but usually what happens is they have a store go dark. You've got that amount of time to find another tenant. And if you do, then the current tenant will pay you 50 cents on the dollar of the remaining rent so they can exit the lease. Um, and then you bring in the new tenant to fill the spot. So that's typically how, how that would go. But that's such a, like I said, we have less control over the valuation in multifamily. So. Hmm. Interesting. So it's quite the setup. And now I can imagine this market is fairly limited, especially if it's, you know, there are a lot of buyers going after dollar generals, for example, well, there are, there are a finite number of dollar generals out there, especially compared to the number of multifamily properties out there. So sure. how competitive is the market? Not very. I mean, that, I think, again, I think people are scared of retail as a whole. And so I think it, it drives away a lot of investors um, just because they don't understand how it really works in small towns and small towns that where they need these dollar stores, where they're, these are the new general store. So my wife is from a small town, Texas, go Fairfield, Texas. Uh, but uh, it's a town of 3,200 people but they have four different dollar stores today and they've been there for at least 20, 30 years in this town of 3,200 people. So it's something where, you know, for that, that town, you know, they have to drive 45 minutes to Walmart. So if they need a last minute item for a party they're having or whatever, they just drive to the, to the one of the dollar stores there in town. But that tells you how needed they are in these small communities. And they're simple buildings. They're metal boxes with brick fronts or brick veneers in the front. I mean, it's such a simple building, but there's not a lot of upkeep as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. So, so the tenant's going to sign a long-term lease. They already have signed a long-term lease. It has a corporate guarantee. So if they want to shutter the store, they still have to pay you all the rent. Right. And then you will have that time to find a new tenant and then you can have them essentially, you can let them buy themselves out of the lease at 50 cents on the dollar if they want to get out of it and you find a new tenant. Right. You got it. Yep. So, Wow, that's all an awesome deal <laughs> for uh, for yeah. the investor. Now, as far as brands to target and like markets to go after, you're talking about these rural markets and small towns, frankly, out in the middle of nowhere. How do you pick a good small town and a good small market from a bad, so to speak, small market? Because not all small markets are created equal, right? 
Well, exactly. So we picked on, so we, so most of them are the ones that we bought last year were in Texas and Oklahoma. So like one's right in the oil patch out in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. So that town's going to be around there for, you know, ever, you know, we've got some near Lubbock, some near the Panhandle again, near the oil patch up there. We have some that one's in Oklahoma, Southeast Oklahoma. It's on the, it's right outside of Paris, Texas, which is a bigger city. So that always helps. If it's closer to a bigger city, I like that. One is in Diana, Texas. It's a suburb of Longview, which is a city of 85,000 people. But folks are moving to Diana because it's a uh, better schools and a, that kind of old. They think uh, Longview is getting too big at 85,000 people. So they're moving out to the country, quote country. They're in Diana, Texas. So there's, you know, you want to look for those different, you know, what feeds that small town and, and what are the drivers there, right? Hmm, okay. So, I mean, do you look for, I mean, you mentioned the Diana, the case of Diana, that the population's growing. And uh, you mentioned in many of those cases, they're neither oil patch. So presumably they have jobs. Now, if you were looking to turn this into, come up with, say, investing principles, if you will, in terms of selecting a market for small retail triple net investments like this, I mean, you look for population growth. Do you look at lease rates or, or you know dollars a square foot for commercial retail and how that's changing over time? Or is that relatively steady? What numbers are you looking now, up to? Well, so we also look at the rent per square foot. So like we knew on the three brand new ones that we bought that family thought was paying eight bucks for the year for the square footage. But the property we bought in Diana, Texas, the family dollar um, on that lease, they're only paying four bucks a square foot. Mm. So I know that, and we bought it at a nine and a half cap rate. So if we do have to get Dollar General in there, um, which you get less, so we'd bring them up to the eight bucks and then be able to sell it for a lower cap rate because they've gone a 10, 15 year lease on that, right? So that's, that's really where you can drive the value is when you go through those kind of bigger unsettling times, I guess I'd call it when you have the tenant move out or not renew, uh, then you got to fill it quickly. Right. So anyways, those are the th- times where you're going to see the big value gains, if at all. But uh, yeah, we look at the rent per square foot. I mean, that's a big deal as well um, because we bought them now and now we kind of, now we know kind of what's the going rate and you know, what our uh, risk is on the mortgage side. But again, that's why you buy, I wouldn't buy one of these, you know, you got to buy 10, 15. I mean, the more you can buy, the better, right? Because it, it spreads your risk, that risk out. Mm, okay. So if we're looking at this from the passive investor side and, and we want to get some exposure to double or triple net commercial retail, these all sound like great deals. I mean, you if you double the rent and you sell it later at a lower cap rate, <laughs> I mean, folks can go learn how to do the math, but that's a huge, huge, huge... That's a big deal, yeah. It's a big deal. It's yeah. a lot of money. So as far as, you know, if, if people are evaluating passive investments, evaluating funds, looking at people like you and evaluating that, what do you say, suggest that they look for and seek in terms of passively investing in, say, a, a triple net fund? And I mean, obviously, we're not giving specific investment advice. We're just saying right. from <laughs> your professional perspective, what is important in a fund such as yours? I think, you, well, I mean, in any kind of investment like this, whether it's some, some whatever some kind of syndication, you really got to do your homework on who's who's driving the boat, right? I mean, no matter if you buy the have the buy the best deal on the planet, someone that's in the the wrong person in the driver's seat can really screw it up, right? That's number one. But two, you know, if you're looking for triple net, I mean, I I know that there's a guy that we ran into. He invested in a a bigger company that's doing similar things, buying triple net leases, lease properties. They charge a lot of fees, a lot more fees than we do. So compare that. I mean, they're 
He was getting like, I think, six and a half percent on his cash on cash. And they pay quarterly. We do monthly just to I don't know, spice things up for people's uh, bank accounts. But to look at the fees, I mean, I, so who's driving it and what are the fees? So those are to me the biggest deal. And then, then I guess I wouldn't maybe say third, but a, a quick third would be what kind of commercial properties are they um, going for? Are they going for the, the corporately guaranteed leases or are, they, or are they okay buying the strip mall with maybe one or two big anchors, but then having Linnells or, you know, these mail depot, whatever, they're guaranteeing those leases. So I would look at that as well because who guarantees the leases is, is a massive indicator for your value, your future value on these deals. Hmm. Okay. So you mentioned the sponsorship fees. Now, obviously as investors, you know, we don't want to try to get our money for nothing because it's not going to happen. You're not going to get paid if the person doing all the work essentially isn't getting paid. So what are typical fee structures? I mean, if we're investing in say an individual syndication and multifamily, there might be an acquisition fee. There might be a asset management fee. There might be refinance fees. There might be disposition fees, all those things. What are typical right. fee structures and percentages in a fund such as yours? So our fund and even all of our syndications, we don't do upfront fees at all or disposition fees, all that. We just do a straight 80-20 split of the profits of the property. For our triple net, we don't even do an asset management fee because, again, once we buy it, it's pretty hands-off. But on our multifamily, we, we charge it. We do the 80-20 split on profits, and then we uh, charge a point-and-a-half asset management fee. So. Okay, that's uh, that's reasonable. And, and like I said, I mean, we don't want to try to get our money for nothing. And if somebody's managing my money, then they obviously need to get paid. So, right, yeah, yeah, know. yeah, yeah. It's a fair deal. I mean, you know, we were trying to create outsized gains outside of what Wall Street can deliver, especially after yesterday, the bloodletting that happened. But uh, you know, with deals, we're set up to have a, a much outsized, you know, gain with the lesser risk, in my opinion than what Wall Street can give. And when we can do that, to give that to our investors, that's a huge win. So, Yeah, I like the sound of that, getting our, our wealth away from Wall Street and getting it back to Main Street. Now, as far as your, you know, we, we covered commercial triple net. I'm sure we could talk about that for hours, but I also wanted to at least touch on your multifamily experience. Uh, I think you said you have 3,700 units of worth of experience bought and sold. Right. Yeah, currently. Yeah, I think we're down to twenty four hundred units now that we actively own. But um, but yeah, we bought and sold before we've been involved thirty seven hundred to date in five different states. So we uh, aren't afraid to get on a plane to buy some multifamily. So nice. So you've seen the market for multifamily change over the years, over this market cycle. And what is your opinion on where we are now? It sounds like you're drawing down, you're selling off. And since you're switching into uh, commercial retail, you're, you might be moving away from multifamily. I mean, what do you think? No, I mean, we, we bought 57 million worth of multifamily in the first four months of the year, all off market stuff. And then we have another probably 20, 30 million about to close by the end of the year as well. So we're, we're still active in multifamily. Uh, we're just getting all of our deals are off market. That's to me, the way to play it right now. And that's part of the cycle because there's deals out there. You just got to know who to ask and be the first five to see it. So, and then grab it when you can in multifamily. And then we're also, you know, in some markets like DFW, it's, we're seeing folks pay a hundred bucks a square foot for 1970s product. Uh, we can build them for 110 a foot. Um, wow. So that's why we're getting in development here. We're building in a, in the growth path. We're not, we're playing the five year growth path at Dallas Fort Worth on this deal that we're doing. 
but it's going to be a, but the land we're buying is for four bucks a square foot, whereas three miles south in Frisco, the land's going for 20 bucks a foot. So our base is going to be really low as long as our investors are willing to buy it or, you know, build it, stabilize it, get into a Fannie or Freddie or Hubbone, and then hold it five, 10 years. That's, you know, that, that's really the play for us on that one. Okay. So you're building for 110 bucks a square foot and that's going to be new. Is that the highest end product? I mean, what level of the market are you going for and we're developing? Yeah. I mean, you can't really build B, B class or definitely not C class because the land costs too much and, and the framing is all the same. The cement's the same. So you've got to build A class. Um, it's not going to be your like super primo A class with all the amenities, dog washing stations and all that. It's going to have an <laughs> office and a, you know, in a pool, some basic amenities. That's kind of the new cool thing to do these days is kind of scale back on the on the amenities because you just no one uses them and no one can really afford them, you know, in the long run. So, Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the, the number of apartment complexes that I've toured and, and looked at, you know, on due diligence trips or whatever, and the usage rates, so to speak, of all of the fancy expensive amenities are so low I mean, people might right. take their dog out to the fenced-in dog park so they can take it off its leash. But you know, all the other stuff—the the grills, sometimes—I don't know. It's yeah, all right. Yeah, I mean, indoor the dog washing station I saw. So my niece lives in a hoity-toity uh, apartment complex here in town, and so I had to go check out their amenities. It's brand new, and they had yeah, they've got like a, a bath where you can put your dog in. <laughs> I, it's crazy. There's blow dryers and all kinds of stuff in there for this. So it's just insane. But uh, they can go too far. And I, I think they have on a lot of that here. I mean, because folks can't afford that rent. I mean, here in DFW, they're having to give away two months of free rent and all this A-class stuff, the brand new stuff. So so the stuff we're building is in the growth path and a lot kind of a, uh, a I wouldn't say a lower end, but I'd say maybe an A-minus is what we're building. It's still going to have granite, nice countertops and, and all that kind of stuff. And the interiors will look good, but it's not going to have the, you know, the Globo gym and all that extra fancy stuff. They'll have a small gym, but not a Globo gym. So. Yeah. Well, people are using those gyms anyway, to be honest with you. I mean, if you, if somebody wants to yeah. have a gym or, or be able to use a gym, they'll generally get a gym membership and go to an actual right. gym. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and I wanted to touch a bit on the, just how you're, you said you can't build B-class multifamily right now for the numbers just to make sense based on how much it costs to build right. things. So as far as where you're selecting your markets and figuring out where you think that five-year path of progress is, how do you figure that out? Because in a way you're, you know, it's hard to predict the future. So how do you reliably do that? Sure. So you can tell by the how they're expanding the roads you know, kind of where the growth is. And you see where they're building these, you know, massive um, housing, new housing developments. Um, so you can see it. And then also it helps that Jerry Jones is buying a whole bunch of land near us. So, you know, whatever Jerry is doing, you want to be close <laughs> to it. So, uh, that's the saying in Dallas. So anyways, I don't know him, but uh, but I, I know he's buying land up there kind of near us. So, hmm. Well, good to know. All right, Kenny. So I've got three questions I ask every guest here at the end of the show. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah, I'm ready. Bring it. All right. Number one, what is the best investment in real estate that you've ever made? Best one we did, um, we still own it. It was our first syndication we put together. It was a 1982 build deal in Wiley, Texas. And honestly, I didn't even know where Wiley was. That was 
it was in 2012 and I was, I lived in Plano. Wiley is like 35 minutes away. So it was a suburb of Dallas as well, but um, I lived in my Plano bubble. And so anyways, a broker bought it to me and, uh, and said, Hey, you want to look at this deal? And I didn't know where the heck it was. So I drove out there, good looking deal. And I can't, cause it's Texas, a non-disclosure state. I can't tell you how much we paid for it, but it was sure. not a lot of money, but it was mostly fixed up. And it was, that was the time that was that the deals were there on the market, but it was harder to get the loan and hard to raise the money. You know, these days we flip, but that deal we've made our investors 600% on their money. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's pretty crazy. So that is the first best one, but that, that was a lot of timing. Honestly, that was just good timing to get into the market in 2012. Right. Uh, you bought anything, then you look really smart, whether you did anything or not, but, or, you know, of import, but that'd probably be our best. That's, that's the best one we've done. Yeah. I think that market timing aspect I think there's probably not enough self-awareness out there right now, or maybe humility is the wrong word, but a lot of people are claiming to be huge successes in real estate and admittedly they've done well, but say they started in 2009, 2010, and they just think they're absolute geniuses and you know, maybe they are, but we need to remember that there has been a massive, you know, market (laughs) upside in that amount of time. Yeah. So I tell folks like, you know, our, our goal is to double our investors money in five years or less on all of our deals in multifamily. And so I tell them, you know, we've, we've beat, I think our average is like 32 months in doubling their money, but half of that is us and half is the market. Mm-hmm. You know, we pushed NOI faster and created the value faster than I thought we could. I mean, we projected, but the other half of that is that the cap rates have also compressed and that's, you know, we've, we've had wind in our back. So I always want to make sure investors know that, we may not be able to beat this 32 months, whatever average we have to double the money again. Our, our goal is to do it, do it five years. So um, as long as they are okay with that and uh, not hold me to 32 months, then we're good. So Yeah, yeah. When do your back is a, a good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So the second question, what is the worst investment that you've ever made? The worst real estate investment? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, the worst real estate investment, we bought, side note, we bought a tanning salon two years after we graduated college, my wife and I, that was not a good idea. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, but the worst one at real estate was, uh, and we're, we're going to make money on it, I mean, 20, 30% over two and a half years, so not great, but with student housing. So we bought two student housing deals, one three years ago, about three years ago, the other two and a half years ago, but it was just something that is such a niche, people make money at it, mm-hmm. uh, but you've got to be able to uh, the biggest deal is if you miss that leasing window because you have a you know 90 day window to lease probably 80 percent of your property because uh, the turnover rate so fast. So, but the actual turns is fine. It, that's just more labor, condensed labor, right? But it's more if if you miss that window, you're stuck for 12 months because you've got these properties just for students basically. Because one of ours is a 24 units, but it's four beds, four baths, and they're leased out by the bedroom. So you have 96 beds to lease out. So if you miss that leasing like leasing window, that's 90 days of craziness to get them leased and moved in. I mean, you're talking and then you miss it for 12 months. It's not good for the soul. Am I, I did not like that. <laughs> so we're going to take that out of the equation. We're selling those two guys hopefully later this year. All right. All right. Well, good luck with that. My favorite question out of these three is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? Uh, patience. You know, like you mentioned, there's a lot of a lot of these folks, especially in Dallas, Fort Worth, because I'm you know I kind of grew up my real estate career here in Dallas and saw a front row seat of you know we were buying you know B class deals for 45 a door 
you know, and now they're traded 95, about 110, 120 a door. And so you just keep scratching your head. It's like, okay, so how are you going to make, how are these guys paying that much? And the demographic, the paychecks haven't grown as fast as the rents have grown for however long we've done those eight years, whatever it's been. So eventually who's going to be left holding the bag? Because right now in DFW, it's more of an appreciation model. We've, we've never had that here in this market. It's, and historically, it's always been kind of a cash flow steady growth market. But, you know, we're, it feels a lot like Austin these days with folks, you know, and it's a lot of these guru groups that have popped up and are, you know, promoting retire in five years and this is how you do it. And, you know, obviously there's some raw raw to it, but that, that adds some kind of false competition, I guess, almost uh, folks that, you know, probably don't have the knowledge or experience to really be buying these deals because they are operations heavy. So you've got to um, have that detail done, but the few, few I've seen don't teach operations. You know, so which is a huge aspect to it. Teach you how to buy it, which is great, but they don't teach you how to run it. So, so I would say patience, because you see these other folks buying a lot of deals, and you get, you know, and, and they're paying a lot of money for them. So you kind of scratch your head, but Hardy's like, man, I wish I could buy that deal. You know, I wish I could buy that amount of unit. But you just got to be patient. You know, the market will correct. And again, like you know, we're not afraid to buy in markets like El Paso or Shreveport, Louisiana, or you know, we're buying a second deal in Cleveland, Ohio. So it's you know, there's. We're not afraid to go to markets where people aren't buying there yet to kind of, you know, stay in front of the wave. So patience. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a lot in that. I mean, you mentioned the guru circuit, if you will. It adds fuel to the fire. The word today about Dallas and Texas in general is that it's pulling a lot of jobs and companies and all that from sure. other areas, California and less business-friendly markets. But, yeah, that doesn't explain all of it and salaries haven't right. doubled in that amount of time. No. no, they haven't. And, you know, we look a lot of, at median income on our properties and, you know, when, whenever we found a deal where it's about a one-to-one ratio, um, so price per door equals uh, median income in that very tight submarket, so just a few couple blocks that they, our deals have been home run hmm. because if you think about it, I shouldn't be able to buy it for that price. That means their revenue is not great or their expenses aren't great or both. Um, there's something wrong. There's a bad operator there, right? So that that's what we've seen. But today we're seeing folks paying, you know, here in Dallas for work, they're paying two, three times per door compared to the to the median income in that neighborhood. And that's just, I mean, if you think about the amount of loan they're putting on there, and then how much rent these folks have to pay that are only making maybe thirty five, forty five thousand, you know, bucks. Can they afford it? You know, a hundred? Can they? Because I mean. Can they afford the mortgage? I mean, they couldn't, usually they wouldn't get approved for three times on a house because it's only 45K, right? Maybe two, two and a half. But if they're paying, these guys are doing the same thing for them. They're paying the, the down payment for them, but they're still having this massive loan on this property where your tenants, the people actually paying your loan for you, you know, we'll, we'll see if they can actually do that long term. So I definitely don't know. I, I certainly cannot, <laughs> I cannot predict the future. Yeah. Well, who knows? Yeah, no, we can't either. But I mean, it just makes you think, makes you wonder if you're thinking about it as a mortgage payment, because it is a mortgage payment. Just there's two different people involved on the mortgage payment. Yeah, um, no, I, I agree with that, you know, and that way of thinking about it in, in principle. And you wonder how sustainable are these gains and when is it going to stop going? Right. And there's always opportunity, though. I mean, that, that's what we say that I pick on these other guys, but, but there's always opportunity. You just got to know where to look and. Uh, when you find a deal, you gotta seize it quick. So yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I appreciate everything that you've shared today. I mean, it's it's great to uh, 
you know, get to pick your brain and, and learn from a fairly, you know, very unique experience. And, you know, thanks for everything you shared today. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So if folks want to learn more about your fund and what you're doing and your company and everything, where can they get in touch with you? So we're on Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel. But the best place probably to go is our, our, our website. So Wolf with an E. So W-O-L-F-E dash investments.com. Perfect. All right. It's a nice website too. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it. Right. It's a good looking website. <laughs> cool. thanks. So uh, yeah, once again, thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah. Thanks, Taylor. My pleasure. To everybody out there tuning in, thank you for listening. I hope you're learning a lot. I certainly am. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a big help and helps other people learn about the show. If you know someone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our little tribe. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. 